0: All right, guys, today I get to interview Jennifer Beatles, the founder of not one, but three companies, Agents Invest, a referral company, ROI in a Circle, a paid mastermind, community, and Door Profit, a software that analyzes real estate deals so you can know if they're going to be profitable or not. Um, very exciting. Obviously, myself, a serial entrepreneur, loves this type of thing. And all of Jennifer's businesses are surrounding real estate and financial freedom. So this is really, really exciting for me, Jennifer, to have you on. Um, and let's take it into it. Um, Obviously, there's a, the market's been changing quite a bit. The deals have been changing. The profitability of the deals have been changing. So let's start with where where are all the deals uh, out there? Where have they gone?
1: <laughs> yeah, Matt. Oh, my gosh. That's a million-dollar question. Um, so, you know, I've been investing for about 15 years. I started as a flipper and also a spec home builder, of all things, just north of Seattle. Um, and so, yeah, so I've been in this business for a while, and I don't... You know, I don't like to say this often, but I would say that this is probably the most challenging market that I have ever experienced. Having also, you know, basically built my businesses and rental portfolio on the back of the Great Recession of 2008. Um, But, you know, back then it was like everything was a deal. The challenge was liquidity. There was no liquidity. Banks didn't want to lend money, investors didn't really want to put their money into real estate because it was going down in value. And so, you know, we had to get really, really creative there. Um, But, you know, right now we've just got this like the great stalemate, that's what I'm calling it. You know, we've got sellers that are maybe looking to exit, but they're not willing to reduce their price to where it would make sense for most buyers. And then, you know, buyers don't want to overpay right now. It doesn't make sense. You know, the interest rates are so high and, you know, collection rates uh, have gone down a bit. We've got insurance rates have increased sometimes, I would say, in the range of like 15 to 50%. That's if you can get insurance right now, if you're in California, Florida, you're almost like out of luck, right? So yeah, you know, it's it's a little bit tricky. Um, but what I'm finding inside of my community and with the agents that we work with is there are still opportunities in areas where most investors are not looking. So, uh, you know, if we, if we just kind of take the, the U.S. as an overview, I would say the state of Tennessee is probably my favorite. Uh, We've been investing in Clarksville, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in and around the Nashville market uh, for many, many years, seven years, I think is when we first got into that market, which I would have bought a lot more (laughs) then. Um, but yeah, there's some great opportunities there. We're seeing a lot of opportunities in, uh, in Kansas, in Missouri. Uh, we're doing a lot of off market deals with these agents who are marketing to sellers. Um, so, you know, there's deals out there. I think that there's a little bit of a sweet spot with small multifamily, um, especially with some of these sellers that are kind of retiring out. Um, and so we're able to do some deals there.
0: So mm-hmm. a small less than ten units. A small less than four units.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would say small multifamily to me is going to be like you know six to maybe forty units, right? So, uh, so maybe a little bit too big for the uh, the individual investor that's just getting started, obviously. Um, and, but but uh, too small for the syndicators, right? So there's kind of this middle ground where there's not as much competition. Um, It's actually fun. I just got a text message from one of our uh, mastermind members this morning. They just closed on their first 45 unit uh, that was off market in Clarksville, Tennessee. And they aim to make at least a million dollars in the next 12 months from this one apartment complex. They actually It appraised $600,000 over what their contract price was. And this is just this morning, right? And we're you know, August, 2023. So there are deals out there. I think, um, you know, investors need to work on their mental state. You've got to put a lot of offers out there. Um, you know, I was telling you, Matt, I just got back in the country, but when we we're in the country, not tra- traveling, I mean, we're, my husband and I were submitting maybe two to seven LOIs every week yeah. and, you know, just getting ourselves out there. So there's deals. There's just, you know, you you've got to turn over a lot of rocks right now.
0: Now you obviously gave us some context by saying you're submitting two to seven a week, right? So you're submitting 100 yes. to maybe three to yep. 400 offers a year. When you say a lot of offers, what does a lot of offers mean? Like what what sort of number should a, a beginning investor think, I do I need to submit 100 offers per deal or what do they need to be doing? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on what types of properties you're looking for. Um, but I would say, you know, for every investor, I tell them they should analyze at least five deals a day. And at least make one offer every single week. And if you can do that consistently over time, I would say, you know, guaranteed within 90 days, you're going to get something under contract.
0: Talk to us about the offer process there. So like probably LOI, I'm guessing, right? Letter of intent and, and kind of it's like it's like an offer, but it's you probably do it in a way that's not binding. So it can be kind of flexible.
1: Correct. Yeah. So my box, my box is 10 plus units, 1.2 million and above. I'm always looking for value add strategy. I like, you know, buildings that are 1965 or newer brick buildings, ideally. Um, so it just kind of depends on what you're looking for, for the investors that are just coming in and they're looking to buy, you know, maybe their first two to four unit. Um, there's probably more opportunities for that right now than the, you know, again, in the multifamily, but, um, but yeah, so so typically my process is, uh, so we've kind of created this deal flow from agents all across the country. and then we've also developed uh, this software called DoorProfit that basically scrubs an entire MLS. so we, you know we have um, feeds from agents that we work with. And then we can also type in any property address and it's gonna very quickly analyze the deal for me. It's gonna give me, uh, you know, potential market rents. It's gonna kind of pull in all the data sources. It's gonna give me the neighborhood score because again, I'm in Arizona. I pretty much am investing I'm currently in eight different states, but I'm investing outside of Arizona for, for deals. Um, so it really just kind of narrows it down for me. And then when we find something that looks like it makes sense, yeah, we submit the LOI. A lot of times, the owners are not willing to give up their full financials until we have an accepted LOI. So I have some provisions, of course, in the contract. There, we get those LOI. Uh, so we get the LOI signed. We go through the financials. Um, typically, we send my husband out to do a tour and, you know, make sure that this is something we want to move forward on. And then, you know, we kind of go from there. You know, the purchase and sale agreement kind of typically happens, I would say, within maybe 24, 48 out business hours after the LOI is accepted. And then we move into due diligence.
0: So so does your husband fly out after LOI acceptance or after contract sign or?
1: Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, we're, we're booking flights <laughs> like once, we, once we get that LOI signed. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of depends on how we want to work it. If if we're going to use an attorney for the purchase and sale agreement, or if the brokers prefer to just use, you know, their standard commercial purchase and sale. agreement, We we have a lot of flexibility in our process because we realize that every state's a little bit different and, you know, brokers have specific specifications on how they want things to go. So we kind of, you know, cater to whatever works for them.
0: So obviously you have a method to the badness as far as how you build these relationships with these brokers and what value are you providing to the brokers to get them to send the deals to you as opposed to other clients?
1: Right. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, we're serious buyers and uh, you know, if we have to pay cash for a property, we can. We have different options, uh, you know, or even a bridge, right? If it's if it's a property that's not stabilized, um, you know, we we have all of these different contacts and people and you know, financing in place to kind of do any deal that makes sense. Um, and then the other part of it too is, you know, if it's a deal that doesn't meet our buy box, we have a community of investors that are also looking. And so the agents know we kind of, you know, become one buyer source for them, if you will. And so they know again, if it doesn't work for me, then there's a high probability that another investor inside of our community will buy from them. And so it really just kind of streamlines the process for them. It actually puts them in a situation where they need to focus more on lead generation for deals as opposed to deals and clients as age. And by the way, and I've been an agent, uh, gosh, since 2009. So like going on 14 years now. And, And I was an investor agent, of course, that was my bread and butter was working with real estate investors. So I completely resonate and understand the challenges that agents go through of you know you've got to constantly lead generate for clients you've got to find the deals you've got to you know show the properties do the inspections and negotiations all the things so we try to make it very very easy for the agents to transact with us
0: yeah and so and obviously i'm assuming the development of the software was to speed up the process of getting to a decision
1: exactly yeah it was you know kind of uh, scratching my own itch <laughs> away Because we have so many deals that we're going through and analyzing, while also, you know, identifying maybe some pain points for both agents and investors. Um, A lot of investors, for example, you know, if they were investing out of state kind of following our lead, they would have questions around, well, is this a good neighborhood or not? And as agents know, we can't comment on, on those things, right? You know, we're, we're prohibited from making those kind of comments. And so, uh, it used to be that, that Trulia, the only reason why you would ever go to the Trulia website was because it had a crime map. You could type the property address in, you know, get an idea of what the neighborhood looked like. And then Trulia stopped publishing that in, I think it was December of 2020. So it's been gone for almost three years. And there's not really been one source of information for, for getting transparent Uh, data on these neighborhoods. And so we rebuilt that. And so now, again, you can type in any address, you can get, it's going to give you a neighborhood score. It's going to give you if the population is increasing or declining. Um, And and this is, by the way, this is at the neighborhood level. Um, It's going to tell you as well, um, household income, you know, all the information, average home value in the area as well. So that uh, agents don't have to be in that position to kind of dance around that question and investors get the information that they need in order to decide if it's the right property for them.
0: Yeah. So, because obviously to analyze a property, you need a lot of data. Like, I mean, and especially yes. in your process, you're, you're not just analyzing the, the P&L side of the deal, but but like you're talking about demographics, like population, et cetera. How much for you is, is the decision about the profit of the deal versus these softer factors?
1: Yeah, I would say that the location is the most important. So you could have, I mean, like, like, for example, I would rather overpay for a deal in a premium location than I would to get the deal of the century in you know, a D class neighborhood in a war zone. (laughs) Uh, Having worked with investors for so long, I, you know, have, have kind of noticed the trends of when deals go wrong. The number one is they bought in the wrong area right? And so, you know, they're always, they're struggling with occupancy issues. They're struggling to keep good property managers, even find good property managers they are struggling to find contractors that are willing to go there. They're, you know, attracting tenants that are contributing to the crime in the area, potentially, you know, damaging the units. So, so anyways, I think that, that, that is key. Um, And so, you know, we try to get into markets where we have uh, increasing population, stable job growth, uh, I, I would say you know we're, we're avoiding one employer towns right? We want to see a diverse uh, economic opportunity for for jobs and employment. Um, and so I think that that's key. Uh, I, I would say that that's number one. So again, I, I mean I've had some what looked to be really good deals on paper and then um, you know super excited about it like, oh my gosh, this deal's gonna make so much money. this is great to then you get into the neighborhood specifics and realize, I'm not going to find a property manager. Like it is, this deal is not, is not going to even, you know, meet my, my pro forma. Yeah.
0: So- Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality situation and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight-line path to freedom. Well, obviously, neighborhood is going to be really important, but when you're evaluating deals in light of the, the what would you call it, the uh, the great stalemate, right? Yes. Where, rents, where rents are, rent collection is dropping and insurance is rising. How does that impact your investing strategy? Do you have to keep more reserves? Uh, Do you write offers at lower prices? How has that affected your strategy?
1: Yeah, we've always taken a conservative approach to underwriting. And so we haven't deviated from that. Um, I think the biggest thing is, you know, we're, I would say, getting on with our insurance broker a little sooner in the process. And I see a lot of investors, for example, making the critical error of basically whatever the current ownership group is paying for insurance premium. And even property taxes, they will use that in their underwriting. And that that just, that just won't work right now. A lot of time, you know, in years past, I would say that you know, we could almost beat those premiums that the owner was paying. We, you know, we could we could get it lower than that, but that is not the case right now. So uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I would say most of the time we are coming in under asking and being more conservative in our approach to underwriting, just to kind of combat some of these, these things that are going on.
0: And as you get slightly more conservative, has that impacted deal flow at all as far as?
1: Uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that it's impacted deal flow as much. Uh, it certainly impacted the number of deals <laughs> that we close and that we actually submit LOIs on. Yeah.
0: What do you see as the future? I mean, I, I was talking to somebody mm. yesterday, and they were describing the market as like a plane that's just stalled in midair that's kind of being propelled up for a little bit. Do you? I mean, you think the plane's dropping? What do you think is happening in the future?
1: I do not expect a market crash. I do not expect uh, prices to come down maybe any more than like 5 to 10%. Um, and, and I should say, you know, to preface it's it's a little bit different. The residential market versus the commercial market, very different. Um But, you know, I actually think that it is going to be more challenging for investors as we, you know, go on through the rest of this year, even through 2024, 2025. I my intuition tells me we're we're going to almost Get a little bit closer to the rest of the world, meaning, you know, the United States is like the land of opportunity for real estate. You go to any other country in the world and you won't find double digit returns. You won't find the appreciation and all the tax benefits that we get. Uh, in most even European countries, there's virtually no yield. People do not buy investment properties for cash flow, right? And so I have a feeling that real estate is going to get incredibly expensive. I have an 8-year-old daughter. My thought is that it would probably be almost out of reach for her at, you know, in her 20s and her 30s to buy any investment properties that would make sense from a cash on cash or cash flow uh standpoint. And so I think that we're going to see lower cash on cash returns. I think we're going to uh, continue to see low cap rates. And so it's just trying to navigate this. Okay, well, how do we still make it make sense, um, you know, from like a long-term business standpoint so that it's not, you know, just something that's reserved for the rich to park their money. But that's, I mean, the rest of the world, maybe aside from kind of Dubai, <laughs> we spent spring break in Dubai and did a lot of uh, real estate expo- exploration there. Um but I, I see yield being a challenge for sure. And I think it's going to be a continued, uh, continued challenge of trying to make deals make sense.
0: So let's talk about the countries abroad. Why do you think it is that they don't have yield? Is it, is it the competition level is so much higher? It's driven prices to a place where you can't have yield because they're smaller geographic land masses? Or like what would you say are the factors?
1: Yeah, uh, there's just a big discrepancy on, you know, the property values and the rent prices, right? And so obviously, you know, wages are higher in the United States than other countries. Um, But it's just, it's not an investment strategy where you make, again, you know, monthly income off these properties. Um, All of these properties in, again, European countries are like, you know, legacy properties reserved for the rich where they just park their money and they're not expecting any yield. And so, I, you know, as far as like why that is, again, I think just the big discrepancy um, between wages and then also, you know, these very wealthy individuals that have just parked their money in these assets, they're not turning them as often as we do in the United States where we're trying to get, you know, our profit back and things like that. Um and so I, th- I think that that's the the major reason why, for sure. Now, of course, um you know, the United States as a whole is three hundred and what three hundred and thirty five million people. and the landmass that we have as compared to Europe and these cars, you know, complete completely different, right? So I think we have maybe you know, five, 10 years before we really, you know experience um, things that are that are very close to Europe as far as that goes. but um but yeah, I think that's just the biggest difference is, you know, wages. Less less availability of these properties, but but that's starting to happen in the United States as well. Um, you know, we we have a major inventory shortage, right? And builders are no, builders used to build um, entry level new construction homes, and we now no longer have those price points available because it's gotten so expensive to build and develop. So, a lot of challenges that we face, I think, moving into the future.
0: And you look at it, I mean, so you look at all the big cities like, you know, LA and, and San Francisco, obviously being closer to me, but um, a lot of lot of big cities on the East Coast as well, they're, they're way out of affordability for the, the new home buyer. And obviously there's pockets across the U.S. where you can, but as I, I would imagine, as we continue to populate and, and, you know, to your point too, as construction costs get more expensive, there will be fewer, if any, spots in the U.S. maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now for, for new buyers.
1: Absolutely. I think you'd be hard pressed to even find any new construction in the United States right now that's under two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars, right? And so it's yeah, I think it's it's gonna be a big challenge moving forward.
0: Yeah. And so what what do you think like? I mean, if we got a little more philosophical here, like what do you think is the right thing as an investor, right? Like what what's the right move for us to do? Um uh, obviously, you know, we have our own interest in mind of, of, of scaling up portfolios, but do you think we're also maybe contributing the problem or
1: uh-huh. Uh I mean potentially. Yeah, I I I think I think the best way that we could contribute on a positive level is build more multifamily. Build more uh and and multifamily in that context is what I'm saying is you know duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. And we're seeing, you know, the zoning regulation start to work in our favor. With that, uh, you know, I know California has pretty much done away with the residential zoning. You know, so, so they're working on that. Um, you know, in Arizona, they're working on that as well, and Washington State. So, you know, we're seeing we're seeing that change. Um, also, you know, with the, the we call them dadus in, in Seattle, where I'm from, but ADUs, mother-in-law units. So that is changing. I think, um, you know, what I would love to see the governments do, though, is provide tax and Incentives for, you know, adding maybe more affordable uh, units, or uh, you know, I mean, also maybe some of the water districts could reduce their fees. It's so it's so expensive. I remember uh, our last building development project that we did was in 2019, and I think we paid seventy five thousand dollars for water connection fees for one duplex. Right, one duplex. I mean, seventy five thousand dollars. It's just it's insane. And so, you know, if we, can, if we can bring down some of those uh, building costs, then I think it'd be a lot easier to, um, to contribute additional affordable housing, for sure.
0: Yeah. And obviously, supply would be a big answer. You know, Absolutely. If you develop a lot lot more supply. And it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, obviously, you need the investors to be able to do that, right? You got to have the people that are taking the money. Absolutely. Um, and the interesting thing about it is, obviously, the lower the cost of the housing is worth it. when it's done, the less incentive there is for the investor to develop it and so on and so forth. Um, For sure. Yeah. So, all right. You're managing three different businesses. Like, how, how does this work? I mean, obviously. Yeah. All. Well, f- well, four, if you
1: look at our rental portfolio. Right?
0: Exactly. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. 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 Um, you know, we have a lot of systems and processes in play. Uh, I do have an incredible team that supports me. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's all about time blocking. Um, so, you know, again, I, I have my KPIs that I need to do on a daily basis for every different business. Um, and, you know, I just tackle those every day. Um, but, you know, for the, for the most part, I would say I get up at like 5 a.m. I'm done with work at about 2.30. My family and I, we travel about 12 months, uh, sorry, 12 weeks out of the year. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I just chop it up to systems and processes and time blocking for sure. And like really understanding what's going to drive the needle in these individual businesses. What does work look like for you when you're traveling? So primarily we take a lot of time off. I might, uh, when we're traveling. So I just told you, we got back from, uh, nine weeks traveling Southeast Asia. Uh, I do a weekly check-in with the teams and then my husband, uh, he manages, he's our asset manager. So he has, um, not all of our property managers he meets with on a month on a weekly basis. But if we are, if we have a property that's in stabilization phase, he is we- meeting with them typically every Tuesday. And so there's a lot of kind of follow up there. Um, and then it's, you know, managing CPAs and bookkeepers and attorneys, virtual assistants. We have, uh, four virtual assistants that work with us that do all the things, but we manage it and we, you know, we really enjoy what we do. We have a lot of free time still and, uh, So yeah, that's, that's how we do it. A lot of trial and error.
0: You were just in Japan, Thailand, Philippines, and I think there was one more spot. Well, Indonesia. Yes. Thank you. Out of those, like if if you could only go back to one of them, like what was your favorite place, uh, favorite experience?
1: So Indonesia is hard to beat. We are very much adventure people. And so we were, you know, in the water snorkeling every day. Um, and, you know, eating really, really great food and just like enjoying life. And so highly recommend Indonesia. We spent some time on the island of Bali. Of course, I think everyone knows Bali. We were uh, at Nusa Penida, uh, Gili T. So just some really, really cool islands there. Uh, incredible snorkeling that the uh, in Gili T, Gili Trawanon, they call it Gili T there. Uh, We were staying at a little villa. There's no motorbikes on the island. There's no cars. So we ride around in bicycles. And, you know, every morning we would wake up, get our breakfast delivered to us in our little villa, jump on our bicycles with our snorkel gear, jump into the beach and be swimming with sea turtles, you know, in the first like 10 minutes. So it's it's an incredible country. Um, Very, very beautiful people. Beautiful landscape. Highly recommend.
0: Amazing. I've spent a fair bit of time in the Philippines. I'm uh, mm. super curious where you went there and how your experience was.
1: Yeah. So we, we, we actually got stuck in a bit of a typhoon.
0: You hear about them, right?
1: They they are real, you know, and it's funny we got there. Um, so we spent time on the Island of uh, Palawan. Mm-hmm. We went, uh, yeah, you know, of course flew into Manila. We spent some time in Coron, really enjoyed our time in Coron. And then El Nido as oh, well. Yeah. Uh yeah, but we we got stuck uh, in El Nido. The, typh- uh, the typhoon had come in, and we got stuck at an airport uh, like middle of the night. You know, all the the power was off, and so it's like we're sweating, waiting to like maybe be able to take off. Um, but that kind of, but Philippines is beautiful. We really really enjoyed the snorkeling there. Really enjoyed the people. Just had a beautiful time. Great food. Love everything about it as well.
0: Amazing. So. What is your vision um, for your life and business? And you can obviously be pretty nuanced in this answer because you've got the software, you've got the community, you've got these (laughs) different things going on. Yeah. The broad context of what's your vision for life and business next 12 to 18 months?
1: Yeah. So for my husband and I, we love, I would say growth and contribution. Those two values really just are the top values for us. And so a couple of things that we're exploring right now is actually uh, de-emphasizing our focus on multifamily and looking into some other asset classes. So, you know, we're here in Phoenix. Um, my husband is actually working on some ground up developments, doing RV storage, maybe getting into, again, this would be a completely new asset class for us. So a lot of opportunities to, uh, to learn through that experience. And then other than that, I mean, software is also new for me. The software company Door Profit was started in 2022, and so I'm learning all things SaaS and how to translate, you know, what I know uh, with Excel into software that's intuitive that you know makes sense for me, and then of course makes sense for agents and investors as well. And so for the next 12-24 months, I think we're going to be exploring some of these new, again, asset classes and different types of businesses while also having fun and enjoying life.
0: I love how you travel 12 weeks a year. That is absolutely yeah. fantastic. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. To bring about your life and your business. Thanks for having me. And for those of you out there listening, write down something you learned from today. Maybe it's just the simplicity that Jennifer makes it sound like for, for scaling these four businesses, right? hiring the right people, having the right values. Or maybe it's the fact that maybe like buying properties in better neighborhoods or in better locations could really help out your investing strategy. Whatever it is, write down what you learned. Share it with somebody that you know so they can hold you accountable. Because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.